Hey, thanks for listening. We want to warn people, though, off the top of this episode that this is going to be one that contains a lot of graphic content. We're going to be talking about the death of Victoria Martins and the trial that is surrounding it. And we want to let people know there are some things that may be hard to hear. Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. The jury has been seated and the arguments have begun. The state will now present its evidence. Nearly six years later, last Wednesday marked the beginning of the only trial to take place so far in one of Albuquerque's most disturbing crimes. You'll decide for yourselves what the defendant did to Victoria before and after her before you retire to deliberate, well, you will know who did murder Victoria. This case is about who murdered her, why that person did it to her, and why the prosecution gave her a plea bargain to be their star witness against the wrong person. We, of course, are talking about the trial of Fabian Gonzalez, tied to the 2016 killing of Victoria Martins. I mean, it's always it's always hard to hear that, you know, a, a child has lost their life. The 10 year old girl was found dead in her apartment, her body dismembered and on fire. They, they train us to to have to deal with these kinds of scenes, but you can't train yourself to walk into this situation. Three suspects were arrested in the case initially. We can talk a little bit more about each of them as we get into this discussion. But first, we'll focus on the person who's on trial. Fabian Gonzalez is facing nine charges in total. Eight of those are tied to evidence tampering as Gonzalez is accused of trying to conceal elements of the crime. The most serious, reckless child abuse resulting in death. Gonzalez is alleged to have put Victoria Martins in a situation so dangerous that it led to her death. This week on the podcast, we want to talk a bit more about not only what has been argued in court in some of these first days of the case, but we also want to talk a bit more about how we got to this point. And most importantly, I think the significance of what's happening here and just how unique this trial truly is. For context, this is a case that both Chris and I have covered extensively from the beginning. When this all started in August of 2016, Chris and I were both still working as reporters in different roles here at KRQE. Yeah, and Gabby, I do want to start with that. I remember I had transitioned into investigative reporting. You were still working in the uh, general assignment part so that for, for those who don't know, it means you're working on a different story every single day. I recall you went to the apartment complex. We have crews following the developments tonight from the Arroyo Villas apartments. Gabrielle Burkhardt spoke to people who knew the little girl. This was again, August 24th, 2016. What do you recall from what that day was like. It is interesting because this is definitely one of those stories that sticks with you, like no matter how many years it's been, it's been six years nearly. Um, but I remember this was an all hands on deck type of story. And that means, you know, we threw a lot of resources at it. Initially, we heard there was a child that was dead. We heard the details 
were very gruesome from the beginning, even though we didn't have all the details at the time. I was one of the reporters sent to the apartment complex. I interviewed neighbors and children in that area. The girl's 13-year-old friend and neighbor tells us she was looking forward to seeing her friend after school. I think that she was thinking like she's going to wake up to like a beautiful day, get off early from school, have her birthday. But yeah, today was supposed to be her birthday party around 3. And that's when I believe we first heard that it was Victoria's 10th birthday. Minister Laura Bobbs says family members called her here saying her 10-year-old goddaughter was killed. She turned 10 yesterday and we were going to celebrate her birthday today after school. Which was just, you know, another knife in the heart kind of moment and a detail that stays with you. I remember the wails of that apartment complex. It's just, you know a sound that sticks with you when you're covering a death and you're encountering family members in their worst moments. It's it's one of the worst worst things to cover as a journalist because you know you want to get the information out there, you want to understand what led to this child's death, but then you're forced to kind of approach people very sensitively and I talked to, you know, some of the neighbors at the apartment complex that had seen Victoria that day, talked about how she was excited about her birthday and celebrating that with some of those neighbors who were there. Um, I went in the days following, you know, I went to her school where there was a growing memorial. Her apartment had a huge memorial as well. In the days that followed this crime, there was a special vigil there that I also covered with a pastor who prayed over the neighborhood and the families and the children that lived there. A lot of outpouring of the support of support from the community came after this crime. Anytime you hear about the death of a child, it's just awful, right? right? And even in the six years, I've gone through a lot of life changes, you know, had a really tragic death in my family that same year. Um, you know, my teenage sister passed away and, and then going through different stages of life, you know, I got married. I, I'm now a parent. I wasn't a parent at the time of this murder, but it does, you know, give you a lot of perspective. We've covered a lot of crime, but this was one of the ones that really sticks with you just because of how heinous all the details are. And you just feel like, you know, you just feel like you wanted to help this child. You know, she was put in such a terrible situation. Right. I wasn't the only one though. You know, you were there, a lot of us, and and I don't want to downplay any part of the coverage or even the first responders who were the first ones to walk into this apartment probably saw way worse things. We were just hearing of the details as they unfolded. But a lot of those first responders are now having to go through that. We can get into that in in the discussion more about the trial. But, you know, they saw um, some of the most heinous things they'd ever seen in their career. But, Chris, let me turn the tables and ask you, what do you recall about this case when you first covered it? I mentioned I was an investigative reporter at the time. I'd started that um, probably almost about a year earlier in 2015. And so this was, again, August 2016. So, Investigative reporters at KRQE, you're kind of out of the dayside mix for the most part. I was not involved in the initial coverage, but I just recall, of course, being in the newsroom, how horrible it was, how you want to be sensitive towards the details of the crime and cover this with respect for not only the family of this girl, but the neighbors, the people who are hearing about this, the people in our community. Um, It was a mostly regular day in terms of showing up to work for me and covering other things. But it was that night 
that I remember I was, I was about to go to bed and I got a call from our executive producer, my now wife, uh, Rebecca Valdez called me and asked me to run into the station. And, you know, if I could go to what we call a perp walk, that's when people are getting walked out in front of the police station after they've been uh, arrested and they're going to be taken to jail. And the police department often does this for high profile crimes. This was one of them. Obviously, I think as it unfolded, we sort of understand a little bit more about why they maybe did that. They wanted to see if they would speak to us in the media and try and say what happened. And so I remember running down to APD, uh, this perp walk taking place and uh, we saw Michelle Martins come out. She had stitches in between her face. She didn't say anything to us, but we knew that you know she was being arrested, involved in the death of a child. We tried to ask her questions. I think she just said no comment one time to one of the other reporters there, and then she went into the police car. Fabian then came out um, several minutes later, and he was far more talkative. And I remember just asking, you know, you don't have a whole lot of time to think about what you're going to ask when these people are coming by you. In this case, I asked, you know, Fabian, what happened? Trying to just get him without being leading to get him to, to say what happened. Fabian, what happened? Did you have anything to do with the death of this girl? <laughs> no, I didn't. Can you tell us anything about what happened? just didn't have anything to do with it. Me and the rest of the reporters elaborated, well, who did, you know, who caused this girl's death? And he, he said, Jessica Kelly, his cousin, was responsible for the death. I tried my best to check oh, Michelle and the baby. But what happened then? Why is there a girl that's dead? That's because Jessica Kelly did it. I just remember surrounded by cameras and there was this guy talking to us and put placing blame for the death of this child on Jessica Kelly. It was after those suspects got walked out that uh, the APD spokesman at the time, Tanner Tache, spoke to us and gave us details about what was said to have happened. And it is really important to note here, what was said that night ended up being far different from what we know happened in the case now. But that night, Tanner Tache said that these people injected this girl with drugs, sexually assaulted her, and then killed her. And that for us was all, I mean, it, it left a lot of us speechless. I know we saw the reactions from a lot of the officers around. I recall the, the newspaper writing about one of the officers in the background uh, during this interview was, was in tears. What happened to this little girl? It's not, it's horrific. It's one of the worst things I've ever read in my entire life. Once we learned the details that police had alleged, which again, far different now than what we understood back then, but it was, it was truly shocking in a way. We, we cover a lot of crime, as Gabby mentioned. I remember one of the first years I was here, there was a man who stole a police car who was firing at officers driving around town. There was another time there was a stabbing in the middle of the church. And there were these very unique crimes that happened, but this one in particular involving the death of a child was just so paramountly different for all of us. So briefly, let's get into how did we get here today in 2022? As mentioned, the three suspects in this case, Michelle Martins, that's Victoria's mother, Fabian Gonzalez, Michelle's boyfriend at the time, and Jessica Kelly, Fabian Gonzalez's cousin, a third suspect that we wouldn't get to meet the night of the arrested. She had 
broken her ankle after jumping from the apartment balcony that night that police arrived. The initial narrative, as Chris mentioned, that we learned from police that night was very gruesome, and it made it sound like all three of them had a crucial role in Victoria's murder, but it actually took two years before we learn the story was far different. Today, however, I need to inform you that many of the key elements in Michelle Martin's statement to police were false and that much of what has been reported about this case is simply not true. That was Bernalillo County District Attorney Raul Torres in late June 2018. Torres's press conference was a bombshell to say the least. It was a massive shift in the charges against all of the suspects. And one of the suspects that very same day, Michelle Martin's Victoria's mom, she took a plea deal on just a single charge of reckless child abuse resulting in death. Torres says he had a team review the case over the past year or so with prosecutors, APD detectives, and new experts. They found there's no evidence Martins and Gonzalez were home when Victoria was raped and murdered in the early evening of August 23rd, 2016, completely countering to what investigators initially thought. Simply put, Fabian Gonzalez and Michelle Martin's cell phones showed they were on the other side of town when Victoria was killed. Torres elaborated on why the change happened in an interview with KRQE shortly after the announcement. I think um, a lot of critical time was lost early in the investigation because um, people took Michelle Martin's statement at face value when they shouldn't have. And even more to that point, in 2018, when Michelle Martins took that plea deal, her defense attorney, Gary Mitchell, explained Michelle's initial confession like this. It became apparently obvious to us that this was a statement made. It had many, many false admissions to it, simply because she was trying to please the people that were questioning her. She's that way all her life. It's just her nature. Now, as part of this press conference as well, we learned that there was a fourth unknown suspect, a theory that continues to be at the heart of this case today. I have today authorized the filing of a criminal information against the unidentified male whose partial DNA profile was recovered from Victoria Martin's body and who remains at large. In the weeks that followed, a second suspect takes a plea deal in the case. That's Jessica Kelly. Prosecutors got her a deal on several charges, including reckless abuse of a child resulting in death, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, conspiracy to commit evidence tampering, and three counts of evidence tampering. The deal was roughly 50 years in prison in exchange for testimony against her cousin, Fabian Gonzalez, at his trial. So the plea was struck around September 2018, but Judge Charles Brown actually rejected the deal not once, but twice in Bernalillo County District Court. Uh, Brown essentially objected to the deal, saying there was a disagreement between the facts of the case and the charges that Jessica Kelly was pleading to. So then Judge Brown, who's now retired, he argued there just wasn't enough evidence that Kelly was able to plead guilty to the death of Victoria. So in January 2019, things change again. Kelly pleads no contest to child abuse resulting in death, aggravated assault and tampering with evidence. And as part of this plea deal, she too is agreeing to testify against Fabian Gonzalez. She faced more than, I think it was 200 years in prison initially before this plea deal was struck. She got 50, 
They suspended six of those. So essentially she's serving now a 44 year sentence. But it's also been noted that she could also only serve half of that if she earns good time in prison. Once that plea deal got sorted out, it would be another key element for Kelly as well. She agreed just like Michelle to testify against Fabian and she has been the state's star witness in this trial so far. All rise for the jury. And that brings us really to the start of this Fabian Gonzalez trial. The two others connected to this case, they've taken plea deals at this point. He is the only person to stand trial. The state will ask you to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty of reckless child abuse resulting in death, tampering with evidence, conspiracy and tampering with evidence. Just from the outset, I feel like this is pretty peculiar. And the reason I say that is because some of the questions I get about this case, people assume that this is a murder trial, but it is not. Fabian Gonzalez is on trial for reckless child abuse resulting in death. In opening statements, the prosecution is clear to say, this isn't about who murdered Victoria or who killed her. This case is not about who strangled Victoria or why they did it. And whatever role you think Jessica Kelly had in the homicide, this case is about the defendant creating a danger that resulted in Victoria's death and his participation in covering up that cause. It's about Fabian, a man who had only been in Victoria's life for just a matter of weeks, and he is charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death and conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence and seven counts of tampering with evidence. Having Jessica Kelly stay in that apartment was danger number one for Victoria. The defendant knew that Jessica had a violent past. Essentially, the story is that Fabian while he isn't related to Victoria, he was the boyfriend of, of mom, Michelle Martins, that he put Victoria in a dangerous situation. The defendant created a danger that resulted in Victoria's death, and he cleaned up the crime scene to cover up his responsibility He met uh, Victoria's mom on a dating app, Plenty of Fish, just in July. So, you know, right before she was killed in August, Fabian's defense in their opening statements went back to the same thing he said that night in 2016 as he walked out of the Albuquerque police station to our news cameras when Chris asked him the question, what happened to Victoria? And Fabian replied that night, Jessica Kelly did it. They're sticking to that in this trial. Nobody saw this coming. But if truth be told, it wasn't somebody who killed her, as the prosecution said. It's not a he, but a she. Jessica Kelly killed Victoria, and their star witness entered into a plea agreement where they dropped the murder against her and gave her 50% good time for a nonviolent crime in exchange for her testimony in this case. The defense contends this case is very much about who killed Victoria. This case is about who murdered her, why that person did it to her, and why the prosecution gave her a plea bargain to be their star witness against the wrong person. So in the initial day of testimony to begin with, this trial is one that you have to wonder what the jury will be left with when it's all done. They've played lapel videos from the scene. We hear police officers' initial response to that apartment as they meet up with the suspects and then discover the fire inside that apartment. 
video, jurors got to see exactly what police described, including Victoria's body, severely mutilated, left in a bathtub, wrapped in a sheet, and lit on fire. I think some of the most powerful testimony from the initial person who took the stand was Sergeant Christopher Enyart. He described speaking with a person who arrived from rescue, essentially. It's a paramedic is really the word I'm looking for. He described speaking with that person, going to check the girl's pulse, and something that they do on every single patient. And and there was discussion there about what do we do? And when you went up um, with this female paramedic, what happened? Uh, we went up there. Um, <laughs> I don't think she prepared for what she was going to see. Uh, she became pretty distraught, um, was panicking about where to put the leads, and the leads are what they put on the body to check for heart rhythm. Okay. Um, and so she fumbled around with that, trying to find an area to put him on the body. And I could tell, you know, she was pretty distressed. So I just said, to her, can we agree that she's deceased? You, in your mind, you think she's deceased. And she said yes. Okay. And I said, okay, then let's get you out. Okay. The second person to take the stand this week was Frank Pisano, a detective now retired who used to work for APD's crime lab. Pisano was responsible for gathering a lot of evidence on scene that day, taking photos of that evidence. He described the scene as one of the most monumental and violent in his career. He also held a lot of evidentiary items up for the jury to see, including towels, knives, Victoria's clothing. He described finding the bags of human remains that were no longer on Victoria's body. There was another sergeant, um, I don't recall his name um, at the time, who was in there with us. And he said, see the basket, says, what's that? And points at the plastic bag. And so I bent down and I sort of touched it with my gloved hand and I could feel it. And the third witness called late Wednesday afternoon. This is what I felt personally from watching the trial was a little bit unexpected. Jessica Kelly gets called to the stand. Next witness, Jessica Late Wednesday afternoon, the first day of trial with just about an hour left in the day. Um, a lot of times these witnesses get saved for, for a period of days after a trial starts because they're introducing a lot of the evidence at first. Kelly's testimony in this case, though, I think is is obviously a key part of what the prosecutors are trying to do. It's it's statements about who a person is and what a person did. Why are you testifying in this trial? To do the right thing. How come you took a plea agreement in this case? I took a plea agreement because I felt if I took it to trial, I would get a license. So Kelly took the stand briefly on Thursday in tears, and she was emotional, notably. Is it hard to be here today? Yeah. Why is it hard? That's my cousin. <laughs> Why is it hard to testify against your cousin? Because I grew up with him. I, I love you. Was there anyone in your life that sort of encouraged you to testify today? My kids and my mom. And what did they tell you to do? To do the right thing and to make sure I come home. 
It really wasn't until the second day of trial that we got to hear a lot more from Jessica Kelly. She was on the stand most of Thursday, actually all of Thursday, discussing the days leading up to Victoria's death. Kelly described a lot of drug use and what was said as, quote, illegal activity. But by all accounts, she also described a lot of regular life type of things, going to and from the store, buying things, buying food, buying drinks, going to social events like a barbecue with her cousins. She also described going to her kid's football game. And I think the testimony everyone was waiting for was her describing what happened the day of the murder. She described having been on methamphetamine all that all the night prior. So this is the night of the 22nd, Monday night. Mm-hmm. Were you up past midnight that night? I was up all night. Was the defendant up all night? Uh, I believe so. Okay. Is the earlier morning hours of the 23rd, so this is Tuesday, just after midnight, were you and the defendant using Yes. And part of what the point she was making on the stand was to say that Fabian, her cousin, knew that she was very paranoid that day. I went and woke up Fabian because I was tripping out and asked him to read the Bible or something with me because I was really paranoid and I was really scared. And he did. She was left alone with Victoria. She admitted she was very paranoid, high on meth, describing the unknown man who allegedly came into the apartment that night and strangled Victoria. What happened next? Um, some guy just shows up. I left the door open, so he like kind of walks in. Had you ever seen him before? I never seen him before, but I was like, I don't know who he is. But he came in like he knew the place, like he knew the the house, you know, he knew the people of the house. And being that I just barely showed up, I didn't, uh, I didn't question why he was there, you know. Uh, he did ask for a fable, and I told him that he wasn't here. Who's Fabo? Fabian. The defendant? Yes. How did he ask for him? He asked, well, where's Fable? And um, I told him he wasn't here. And he was like, oh, well, who is? And I said, me and the girl. And I pointed to the room and he like nodded and then he went to the room. So I, I just figured he knew, he knew the little girl, he knew the family, so I'm like, oh. You pointed to Victoria's room? Yes. And um, I ended up grabbing a cigarette and going to, to the balcony and smoking a cigarette, think, not thinking anything was going to happen. And when he came out, he let me know that um, he had something to clean up in there. And I didn't understand what he was saying. At first, I thought he was like playing with me, you know. So I waited until he left, and um, I went to go look outside before I went to even check on Victoria. I was like, "Who is this guy?" You know. So I went and looked outside to see if I seen anything like out of the ordinary or, or anybody out there that I knew, and um, I did it. So I went and checked on Victoria. I noticed she was laying down, and I checked her pulse, and she didn't have a pulse. Let me back up just a little bit. When he left and he said there was something to clean up, did he threaten you? Yeah. Without saying any, what else he said, did he say more? Um, he just threatened me. He just threatened me and my my kids and my cousin. One of the big questions I think that'll come from all of this testimony is whether or not the jury is actually going to believe it. You know, whether or not she's a credible witness, as they say, Um, I think that's in part why the prosecution is trying to say this isn't about who killed Victoria Martins, because Kelly, by her own admission, has said she doesn't remember every single detail from the night. But the prosecution is ultimately just trying to prove that 
Fabian placed Victoria in a dangerous situation and led to her death, and that Fabian helped tamper with evidence by trying to conceal the crime. Um, I think some of the other interesting testimony was also Jessica Kelly describing the moments after Victoria was killed. She says she told Fabian almost immediately after Victoria was killed. They came in, uh, they were out there for a few minutes, and then they came inside, and uh, Fabian told Michelle right away to make some tacos. And I pulled Fabian to the balcony, and I let him know about the guy coming, and I let him know that uh, Victoria was in her room dead. What did he say? Um, he went and checked, and he came back, and I don't think he really believed me, because he was like, for real, cuz? What the f***? And I was like, for real? Like, what are we gonna do? We have to get rid of her body? Like, no. And he said, all right, we'll take turns. Um, how are you feeling at this time? Are you still... I'm high, but I'm like coming down. And notably, everyone does agree that Jessica Kelly was alone with Victoria. So Jessica Kelly claims she was alone when this unknown man came in. And then when Fabian came home, she pulled him aside and said, hey, this happened. Victoria's dead inside her bedroom. And that's when she says they both started panicking and agreed to distract Victoria's mother and conceal the crime. So the defense in cross-examination tried to hone in on this element here. What is Fabian's motivation for helping conceal this crime? You remember in your, your AM uh, statement to Detective Lewis, do you remember him asking this question to you? Help me understand why, if Fabian doesn't know what he did, and he's obviously not involved in the death of the little girl because he's not there, that portion of it, why doesn't he just leave if he doesn't know what he did? Do you remember being asked that question? Mm, I believe so. What was your answer? Uh, honestly, I don't remember. Did you say, I don't know? You couldn't really come up with a reason why he would do this with you, could you? No. And as you heard, we didn't really get an answer from Jessica Kelly as to what Fabian's motivation was for helping her would be just that, you know, she pulled him aside, tells him that she's dead, and they both agreed to distract Michelle in that moment and hide the body. Kelly's testimony continued into Friday morning. Cross-examination um, from the defense attorneys really started um, in the afternoon of Thursday. So the second day of trial continues on into Friday, the third day of trial all morning long cross-examination across the first week of trial. Kelly was on the stand for, for at least eight hours for both the prosecution and defense combined. Ultimately, the prosecution really is, again, trying to get two things out here from Kelly's testimony, I think. One of them establishing she was a drug user. She was just out of prison and that Fabian shouldn't have left Victoria with her knowing that she was using drugs. The second thing, I think the prosecution was trying to establish that Fabian and Jessica both helped dismember and mutilate Victoria. 
ultimately those are the two charges that Fabian is facing. So let's talk about the significance of this case and this trial. This was such a big deal. We've already talked about when it happened to have it finally go to trial or at least one person charged in the crime face a trial and hear, you know, a jury to hear all of this testimony and this evidence with as many questions that we've all had about who did this and why. This is a case where someone is being charged with reckless abuse of a child, but barely, you know, has any connection to the child that they're accused of causing the death of. Yeah, very rare for that to happen because, you know, again, Fabian had been in their lives for less than a month. Um, so so it is very unique that that he would face a charge like this in a situation like this. I was asked by a coworker earlier this week, you know, why does this case get so much attention compared to other murders? He just wasn't too familiar with the case. I think it is the nature, ultimately, of what happened to Victoria Uh, And it's the reality that we're not really sure what happened to her, as in we're not sure who killed her. She's an innocent 10 year old girl. Somebody walks into an apartment, according to the prosecution, and kills her for no apparent reason. And then the body's mutilated to help conceal the crime. It, It makes you wonder, like. This could have gone so many different ways. This this didn't need to happen, obviously. And it could have easily been reported, right? But you did hear from testimony and Jessica Kelly's side of things, why maybe she didn't go to police. She says she had distrust. And every time that she sees a police officer, she, she, she described running. The story is that no one really knows who killed Victoria or even why. And it, it is, I think, frustrating just for everyone to know that nobody is charged in her murder. And if there is this fourth suspect, where is this person? Uh, the prosecution, when D.A. Torres came out and said this, they did say they had unknown male DNA found on Victoria's body, which is evidence that they're using to prove their case here, that there was this unknown person. But the defense has brought up that DNA saying, well, Victoria didn't shower that day and it could have come from her playmates. So there's also that question out there of like, does this fourth person exist? All in all, this really is just an awful and a very sad case. Again, one that you just wonder this 10 year old girl, why? Uh, she, she did absolutely nothing wrong. She was a victim here in the truest sense of the word. No even indication that any of this would happen in her life. Um, this is obviously going to be a case that is going to leave people with a lot of questions for years to come. Coverage for this case, of course, continues on air on KRQE and online at krqe.com. Chris McKee has been live streaming the entirety of the trial and will continue to do so over the next three weeks. We're releasing the episode, this episode, in the midst of week two. We expect to hear a lot more from witnesses in the days to come. You can also check on the day's events anytime at krqe.com as we continue to cover this trial. Yeah, we were live streaming every single day of this trial but notably that video does not get saved on our website. So if you want to see it on krqe.com, you got to go there as it's happening. 
and um, we do post a new article for each day of this trial. So try to put it up in the headline there, day three, day four, day five, if you want to go back and look at some of the summarized news coverage that has happened in this case. Notably, Fabian Gonzalez, who is on trial in this case, is charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death. It's a capital felony crime. He faces anywhere between 12 to 18 years, but when it results in the death of a child, like it does in this case, there is discretion and he could face up to life in prison. Yeah. If he is proven guilty, then a sentencing hearing gets set. That is where that would happen. Uh, We would find out what the judge would sentence him to up to potentially life, as Gabby had mentioned. Also want to mention on air during our newscast, Brittany Bate has been wrapping up each day of trial for our 10 o'clock news and Ariana Craft as well has been in the courtroom. Uh, She's doing these reports for usually for our noon, four and 530 news each day. We'll have another episode for you all next week. In the meantime, you can also reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com and also at chrismckeetv on Twitter. If you have any questions as the trial comes up, feel free to tweet at me, email them in, and I'm happy to help answer them if at all possible. Appreciate you listening.